And so they begin their year with these New Year's resolutions. They begin their goal of uh, of starting something, but they really haven't begun with the end in mind. They haven't really thought about what would this really look like and how badly do I want it? Because if they do, it it makes all the difference in the world. There's the old saying, when the why becomes big enough, the how becomes automatic. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, where we inspire your true performance. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and today Tom Ziegler and I talk with Skip Pritchard, author of The Book of Mistakes, Nine Secrets to Creating a Successful Future. Skip is the former CEO of Ingram Content Group, the publisher. A Harvard Business Review labeled him as a rare social CEO and a relentless giver. But check this out. How Skip grew up is really interesting and is at the heart of this message today. Both of his parents attended seminary. They were told they could not have children, so they were headed to the mission field in a third world country. Skip's mom became pregnant, eventually having six kids, so they made the mission field their home, taking in people who were abused and addicted. That was Skip's upbringing, hanging out, growing up with these people. And it's where his fascination with success began. He was intrigued with this question. Why does one person, same circumstances as another, but why does one person succeed while the other would fail? Wouldn't you love to know that answer to that question? Well, we talk about that and that is again, the heart of his message. Some of the high points we talk about servant leadership, the mistake of working on your dream, not someone else's, uh, determining who you want to be, not just what you want to do, how having a clear purpose attracts people, the mistake of allowing someone else to define your value, the mistake of accepting excuses. Again, the main issues Skip covers are what he saw that made the difference between two primarily equal people, which would succeed and which would not. It's just a fast, fascinating conversation. So you can get the book and connect with Skip at skippritchard.com. That's S-K-I-P. P-R-I-C-H-A-R-D. Well, folks, we're just going to dive right in right now with Skip. Well, Skip, in looking at your book, which I was so grateful to get an advanced copy, so I feel much more informed than the rest of the populace who's going to get this shortly, and looking at the website, I saw an incredible amount of testimonials from some people I knew, like my dear dad, Dan Miller, but then also I think the entire shelf of every guest that I've ever interviewed on Ziggler, and they're all endorsing your book, so just really honored to have you here today. I'm so glad to be here, and it was amazing to have all of these terrific endorsements. Maybe we used your show as the list to go after these major people, but these are wonderful friends, all influencers of mine, and I'm thrilled to have them on that book, and I'm also thrilled to be here. Thank you. Well, and as we've got uh, big Tom Ziegler with us, and we were chatting before we started, you have a little personal experience with Zig. I think you said it beginning as a teenager? Beginning as a teenager, actually, my mom was a Mary Kay person. Oh, yeah. And she came back one time with a cassette tape. Remember cassette tapes? I remember those. And she said, I think you would love to listen to this speaker. And I put it on, and it literally changed the course of my life because personal development became a passion of mine. Sales actually became a passion of mine and motivation and self-confidence. And I listened to it over and over and over. In fact, it was funny. Last week, my mom, who's getting up there in years, I told her that I would be on this podcast. And she says, you know, 
they should know how odd you were as a teenager when most people would have uh, playing, you know, some kind of rock music or something. You were playing over and over Zig Ziglar. She says, that's not normal. I just want you to know. And then even in various family settings, sometimes they would say, hey, Skip, do that uh, part on whatever the topic was, self-confidence, go. And I could launch in right with the intonation and everything, which I will not do. And um, and people got quite a uh, kick out of it. So yes, he had a profound influence on me early on. So I'm extraordinarily blessed. Oh, wow. I love that. You know, if if that cassette tape was 30 years ago, it might have my fingerprint prints on it because that's what I was doing at the company 30 years ago. I was making those cassette tapes. We used to manufacture them. We'll do a so. DNA test. <laughs> hey, I was, and I was with you when I was uh, at home and getting out of line, I would get a zig tape and an attitude adjustment uh, time period. And which check up from the neck up. Check up. Yeah. Which, we're still, we're still not sure why I don't loathe uh, the zig ziggler thing, but here you go. It changed my life. And, and here we are as well. Well, you know, in the book and in just your personal story, that's what I was initially intrigued with. And the riddle, as you started off the book with, you're one of six kids, your parents ministered to scores of people, primarily those coming from hard lives. And from that, you saw people and wondered, and I love that question because it's one that's uh, such a foundational one for me. Why did two people with similar circumstances end up with dramatically different Results, And it feels like that's the holy grail question of personal development, self-help, and, and personal progress. I mean, do you see it with that much gravity from your experience? I really do. It was an extraordinary way to grow up. It was very different. My parents took in – they were supposed to go off to a third world country. They couldn't have children, they were told, and then – that was their plan. But my mom ended up getting pregnant, having six kids. So she said, well, let's just make the mission our home. Let's bring people in. Let's, let's just open our home to whoever needs it. And so we brought in the abused, the addicted, and the abandoned, I'd like to say. Wow. And the only commonality was they all had problems. We all, we all do, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> and um, I would see some of these people. Some would stay for nights. Some would stay for years, and literally years. And one would go off, maybe go to community college, get a job. Somebody else would do the same thing, but then would circle back, would be back on drugs, would be stuck in abusive situations, et cetera. And I really was, and of course I was listening to Zig Ziglar cassette tapes and I was interested, wait a minute, why did you have the same kind of grounding, the same counseling, the same input, but you went off and succeeded and you kind of circled back and are stuck. And I just became fascinated with that. And I started studying that. And of course, listening to the Zig Ziglar tapes, it started to inspire me to go to the library and start to really fill my mind with a lot of thinkers that, you know, Jim Rohn and Earl Nightingale and others. And I started really thinking about what is this? And uh, that question became and still is something that I ponder all the time. Yeah. Well, it's, it seems dramatic. I mean, the overall premise then that you lay out right from there is ask, seek, and knock. And you cite Jim Rohn as motivating you to become an asker, a seeker, and a knocker. And, and right there, you had, it tells me you had aspiration and 
then I, I love the words uh, of aspiration. Actually, the definition says it's a hope or ambition of achieving something. So in your experience, really that, that early on experience there, in your experience, and yeah, especially as a youth, people coming from a really low place, no silver spoons, no privileges, no reason to succeed or, or not necessarily, or maybe not to succeed according to most. Why do you feel now that some did end up aspiring and others did not or are we ever going to know that question? Well, it is, it is a mystery. I, since then, have embarked on – I read a book a day, at least, wow. and I have interviewed over a 1,000 people on leadership topics, and I have really made this uh, my study. It's, it's, this, it's the central part of, of why this is. And part of it's mystery, but part of it is uh, these nine secrets that I put into this book of things that I've seen that are common pitfalls, common problems, common mistakes that people make and that they need to adjust or they need to do differently. And so I've, I've put them all into, uh, into the book. I'll tell you, though, one of the big areas for me that, that I'm a student of is servant leadership. Mm-hmm. And the earliest part of student servant leadership was one of my favorite Zig Ziglar quotes, although I have many, but, uh, but one of them was, you can get everything in life you want if you just help enough other people get what they want. Yeah. I saw that as servant leadership. And I saw that people who really had that in mind of serving others had a different attitude, a different mentality, a different desire. It wasn't a desire about personal gain. It was a desire of influence. And that made all the difference in the world. Okay, so is that literal? So as you're a kid and you're there with the the down and outs of society to a degree, that even with their similar circumstances, similar addictions, that there was one that maybe had more of that external look at other people, noticing them, being aware of other people, a servant seed in them and others who did not, and were those with that servant seed more apt to aspire it it seems that they were less likely to be trapped you know if you're trapped in abuse or depression or addiction or um introspection which can happen to the very best people because of external events through no fault of their own that happened to them and and some stories are extraordinarily heartbreaking but it's the desire to give back the desire, you know, just like my mom who, who lives that life of giving back and giving to others and feeding that for them. If they wanted to give to others, if they got involved in a lot of the programs that our family was involved in, it became less likely to trap them. So if you're serving others, helping them get what they want, serving others, thinking about others first, it's hard to stay depressed, right? Because you're helping others. You can always find somebody less fortunate than you. Some of these people, that was hard. I mean, they had been through unbelievable circumstances of extraordinary abuse and um, just just awful situations. But you can always find someone worse off. And when you find someone worse off and you start to think about what they need, what they want, you're not going to be trapped because all of a Mm -hmm. sudden you're not thinking about you. You're thinking about someone else. That's not a magic bullet. It's not something that solves all problems. It doesn't mean you don't need counseling. If you just go help paint a building, it's not a simple answer for, for people who really have serious problems, but there is a mindset of serving others. And it starts with that attitude. It starts with that desire to serve others and not 
kind of self-centeredness. <laughs> wow, I just I just love that this this past week I've been studying this and I just did a a webinar called the Trinity of Transformation. And my keyword for 2018 is transformation. I don't care where you are in your life, you can transform to another level to another area of impact. And I had three words in this Trinity of Transformation that I'll share with you, but it came, it comes off of this, of uh, dad's quote. And when you said the word aspiration, uh, it just kind of keyed on this. I was reading dad's devotional and he has this quote, the degree of hope you manifest by persevering through obstacles becomes a measure of your passion. Mm-hmm. And so the Trinity of transformation is passion, hope, and grit. Right. So grit is that, you know, that, per, that I'm going to do it no matter what. Right. It's that's Angela Duckworth and stick to this and all that. And so when yeah, I'm just curious, what, what how does hope and and passion play into the the people who who stick to it or get out of it or, or go to that next level? I think it means everything. And so many of those themes are are in this book. Um, I talk right at the beginning in in this book because it's this story of this young man who meets a, a, an older man and then goes on this journey with nine very wise teachers. And it starts with readiness. And I say in the book that readiness is when your desire is stronger than your distraction. So how do you make sure that your desire for what you want, your goals, that's good, is, is that's greater? good than your distraction. And um, the, the very first mistake kind of plays into that in terms of uh, your purpose. So, um, but before you even begin your journey of these nine mistakes, are you ready? And readiness has to start with desire over distraction. So many people say, oh, I really want to. But then they're so easily distracted, right? Oh, there's a great game on. Oh, there's this uh, event I can go to over here. Oh, look, a bird, right? Anything. But doing what I want, that means you really didn't have desire. It was just a thought. It was just a wish. It was just a passing thing. Desire is when I will do anything to make that happen. My desire is going to exceed my distraction. And I'm always looking at those. So people who have real goals, they're going to really be thinking about their, and you can focus on both sides of that equation, right? Increasing your desire. What will that take? So if I really want this, what will that be, right? If I, if I want to surround myself with people who've achieved that goal, if I want to visualize what it's like to have achieved that goal, I'm increasing my desire. And then how do I, on the other side of the equation, eliminate the distractions? So in that Trinity kind of example you use, there's these distractions, the things that are going to weigh me down. How do I get rid of those so that I can have that grit, that determination to power through uh, all of those things that come along the way? Uh, I interviewed Jennifer Farr Davis. She's this, uh, uh, she had had the record at the time, I think it's recently been broken, for traversing the Appalachian Trail, right? Thousands of miles. And she did it completely differently. She did it backwards. They said, you can't go backwards. A hiker can't win over a runner and um, a woman can't win. I mean, she, she had all these obstacles. And then she was bitten by snakes and insects and all of these things that happened to her those were distractions. Those were things that were nipping and kind of pulling her away. But her desire to win, 
beat all of those distractions. It didn't matter. What all of us would have said, well, I, I'm sorry I didn't make it because, you know, I got bitten by a snake or a spider bite me. Uh, except we would have all these. Ex- no, her desire exceeded her distraction. Yeah. I remember early on, I read a book on great uh, survival stories. It was called uh, Castaways and, you know, and Shipwrecks. And the factor was whether they had the will to live or not. It didn't, the, the circumstances or the health at which they started this trauma with didn't matter. It was their, all that desire, that will to live. And that's absolutely, it means everything. And you see it with patients in hospitals. You see it with people who are getting uh, off of drugs. You see it with high achievers, right? I mean, it's, it's the whole map, but wherever you are, you can really start with your desire your your dad talked about it so well with attitude and that attitude of where are you and how am I going to move forward is critical to everything. It's not always easy, right? It's not always easy to have that uh, positive outlook, but it, it means everything. And uh, I think about another study that was so interesting. I often cite uh, about gallbladder surgery. I think, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> well, the, the, the researcher found that after gallbladder surgery, there were some patients who were healing faster, less drugs, less intervention, and others would convalesce longer, need more pain medication. And they were studying that difference. And, and I saw that study and I thought, oh, wow, that's like my life study between who succeeds and fails. Why, why is this the case in gallbladder surgery? And you know what it was? The single factor that made the difference was the view, meaning the people on the inside of that hospital who had a view of a brick wall. They didn't have the same recovery. The people who actually had a window where they could see outside, they were the ones who healed faster. And I thought, wow, what a perfect example, because all of us have to change our view. If we change our view, it changes everything, and we can go faster, and we can have success faster. And that, to me, became so very important. So who would have thought in gallbladder surgery, but it would have an impact on success or leadership or personal development, but your view depend really is, is everything. So how do you change that view? The people who we experienced that in our family had a view that was limited by their circumstances and situation. How do you change that view to give them a view that's uh, opportunistic and that has more of a uh, positive future that they can see themselves achieving? And that's a very interesting uh, study. Well, I was going to ask the question as you were talking about desire and distractions, you know, chicken or the egg, which comes first. And I was thinking about managing distractions, but in hearing both of you, it feels pretty unequivocal that you're saying increasing the desire may be the most important thing. And I thinking about my own life, most of it has come by, I'm not a great manager. I'm not good with details, but I do get a vision and I latch on with an iron grip and I figure it out. It may be a little carnage out there. It'd be better if I did manage the distractions. But do you find that too, that yes, okay, being aware of the distractions, setting a priority list, making goals, writing them down, all good things there. But would you give counsel to the C of us that if we want this thing to happen, increase your desire? 
for me, I think the desire is the key component. It is uh, the beginning. I, I talk about that as one of the laws of success in the book. It, it is it is the crucial component that most people don't really have. They haven't painted the picture of what success looks like enough. And so they begin their year with these New Year's resolutions. They begin their goal of uh, of starting something, but they really haven't begun with the end in mind. They haven't really thought about what would this really look like and how badly do I want it? Because if they do, it it makes all the difference in the world. There's the old saying, when the why becomes big enough, the how becomes automatic. When mm. the why becomes big enough, the how becomes automatic. That why is the desire. Really, why do I want this? And sometimes you find with your goal, I've done this, this is one of my goals. And then I look at the why behind it and what really start looking down the road. And I go, you know what? I, I don't want that. It, it's not going to give me a big enough why for me to do it. And I cross it off my list. Free myself before I even start. Right. Then to go and, and pretend that I'm going to do this when my why wasn't big enough. So I, I think the desire is a crucial component of that. Okay, folks, we're going to keep digging in further with Skip right after we thank a couple great supporters of today's show. Well, so feeding into that, again, back to the book then, and we've got this guy, he's got this, what he finds to be a a mentor, a guide, and this older man. And right off the bat, the guy asked him, and this intrigued me, the first question was, uh, what are, I need to ask you, what are you so afraid of? And what I really liked about that was he didn't ask, are you afraid or what do you fear? But what are you so afraid of? Which made the blatant assumption that he was afraid of something or, or some things. Do you feel this question is relevant? I mean, I'm sure you do for all of us that we are all on any aspiration, any desire that we may be looking at. We are uh, by nature as humans, we're going to be handicapped someone somewhat by real existing working fears that are going to limit us if we don't deal with them, get them on the table first. And as you wrote it out in the book, I thought, I don't think I've, I've never done that exercise to that point. I think it's so important. We all have fears, right? Fear of public speaking is a big one. People think about fear of failure, feel, fear of how I will look. We, we all have them. And I think it's important to just put them down, be clear about what they are, and to get real with yourself about you know what what is it that that's that's stopping me and that that's something that i would see so often with the people in our home that would be stopped is something would block them some kind of uh, fear of uh, of something would stop them and and oftentimes it was fear of self image right fear of my, my self image is so identified with with who i am i'm a homeless man mm. right and and I see myself that way. And I have a fear of success. I have a fear of leaving that identity that I have, even, even as a homeless person, to be something else. Or I have a fear that if I'm at this level, you see that all the time today, right? We're, we're watching people implode yeah. all around in the news every day. Yeah. And oftentimes, I think it's because they've achieved a level of success that has eclipsed and succeeded their internal development of who they are. And if your spiritual, internal, mental image is uh, is one level, 
and you achieve a certain level in your mind that's here, you're going to sabotage yourself to get back to your level. Or you can increase your personal development to quickly rise to that uh, level of success. And so I think it's a, it's a constant balance between all those factors. So, so right after that, you talk about that the student is full like a full cup. Before you can absorb a lesson, and I'm quoting you, you need to have room in your cup. Does this go along with distractions that, that to take action on a progression for our lives, we must first div- divest ourselves of these things, of these distractions, of, of whatever it is? I, I think so. I think divesting of those distractions and being ready for the next lesson. And can you, you know, in order to be ready, your cup has to have room, right? So that's the analogy. How do you, how do you do that, right? Well, there's two ways. One is you pour out those distractions. So you get rid of the things that are filling your cup that are just wasted space that are just not really going to take you to where you go. That's step one. But the other step is even more interesting to me, which is you don't need to keep the same size cup, right? So if I listen to your father's uh, personal development discussions, talks, uh, all of that motivational activity that he inspired us with, most of that was really to expand the size of our cup. And so those two things can get you ready to experience life at a completely new level. And I think you want to get rid of the distractions and you want to work on yourself, which expands the size of your cup, your capacity to take on new things. I love that. So in our, um, our trinity of transformation, I, I kind of created a balloon, right? And so desire or passion, I love the word desire. I think I like that better than the word passion, actually. Because I think passion kind of flows out of desire, right? Once we, <laughs> once we get in there, so, so I, I have this balloon, and uh, in the balloon, they the the bucket is passion or desire, and then the balloon itself is hope, and that's where it rises. But until the desire lights, and then grit fuels it, that the balloon doesn't go right. I mean, it. You that's a great up. analogy. That is great. And then if you've ever, I've never done a hot air balloon. I don't know if I ever will, but they're always tied down with ropes and these ropes are restraining forces. They keep you from going where you want to go. And I love the way you talk about, we got to make room in the cup because those are the ropes that are holding us down. We can't, we can't lift off and go where we want to go. And we had a gentleman on earlier, Greg McCune, and he talked about, essentialism. And I'm just curious, are you familiar with essentialism? And what are you really just talking about just boiling it down to what is essential to take me to where I want to go? And if it's not just kind of throwing it over the side of the balloon. I, I, that, and for me, in terms of distraction, and I know him and, and his work, that's, that's a terrific analogy. That is to me, distraction back, back to essentialism coupled with the personal development, which changes the scope of, of the container that you're in. And I, I love the balloon analogy. I can picture that so well. Um, I, I, I may quote you on that now. Yeah, Tom. That's good. Yeah. yeah. On the balloon, I'm just kind of paraphrasing one of dad's old stories, but you know, it's not the color or the size or the shape of the balloon that matters. It's what's in it. Right. That's right. And, and the, 
the idea that we could make it even bigger. And so that really takes the limit off. And and I love that idea of, man, if we're going to go where we want to go, it's that combination of of creating the right balloon, the right fuel into it and getting rid of the stuff that's keeping us anchored. So, right. And, and that's why we need to guard our hearts and minds for what's coming in. Uh, I think of that story that your dad would tell often on, you know, would you allow someone to come into your house and just throw trash everywhere? And then, uh, you know, what would you do with that? And it, it always struck me. I've, I've told that story quite a bit because it's a great analogy and it's the same thing. Like don't let the trash in, in the first place, like guard it. It is an incredible, um, opportunity for you to succeed in, in the book. At, at one point I talk about the microphone in our mind and, it is the most important microphone in the world, even more important than the microphone I'm speaking into to you, <laughs> which is that internal microphone, which controls our thoughts and where we're headed. And often that internal microphone, we leave unguarded. We just let anything just come on up and just blast it, right? We, we watch stuff on TV and we fill our minds and we think, wow, what did I just fill my mind with? I left that microphone, the most important microphone in the world, unguarded. And that's a key mistake, right? So uh, one of the mistakes is doing that. You, you have to guard that microphone so that you can fill your mind and your future with success and not end up in failure. Friends, I want to take just a moment to thank the sponsors who helped bring today's show to us. All right, guys. Well, hey, I am still hung back up on the cups because you just blew my mind a little bit with that because I'm sitting here and thinking, okay, you got the cup and kind of back to what I talked about. Do you take some time, manage those issues and and get some of the stuff out of the cup knowing that you've got to have some room to fill it? Or I'm thinking, no, I generally just kind of jump in with my big desire and splash out whatever. Something's got to give. And yet you said, wait, there's a third option. This is your next book, Skip. Okay, we're going we're gonna to put that on you. Is get a bigger cup. Increase the size of your cup. And you know, to me, that in my work that I did helping people transition from traditional employment to self-employment, they generally, they're doing this on the side. They needed more out of them, themselves. We got into health and wellness and just increasing their energy and giving them more to give. That was a way of increasing their cup. But I never thought about it in that term. So when you say that is, so there, there was one idea. Okay. Increase your energy, increase your cup. Are there some other ways for people to look at going, gosh, I'm, I'm maxed out, but I don't know what I can give, uh, give up, but I want to do more. How can I increase the size of my cup? The, the entire study of personal development to me stems around that question. To me, everything about studying success and personal development comes within that framework of increasing the size of your capacity. And one of the things that I love about that quote, you can have everything you want in life if you just help enough other people get what they want, is it, it, it expands your cup by giving to other people. And it, it expands your capacity. And you also learn to surround yourself with people that will come alongside you that will end up stretching you, right? So one of the wonderful uh, opportunities in personal development and key in this book is surrounding yourself with the right people. And part of that is they stretch your cup in ways that 
you wouldn't, or it's unnatural, or it's painful, or it's just a drag. And some of your best friends to help you succeed are the ones that challenge you, push you, make you uncomfortable. And you'll start to see that kind of expansion in your capacity. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's extraordinarily important. And, uh, and both of those things constantly go together. So I'm, I'm more on the desire side, but there are lots of distractions. You can anticipate those before they happen, right? If you want to start running and you think, well, it's, it's raining or whatever, you can anticipate some of that beforehand to say, what will I do when this happens, this happens, this happens, these distractions, how am I going to work around them? And how do I work on my desire? And all of those things interplay. All right. Well, I'm going to give folks who are listening a little tip here. He just gave you mistake number four, surrounding yourself with the wrong people. So there you go. Uh, well, at this point, okay, I'm going to deviate a little bit here real quick because I'm, I'm interested just in book writing and publishing. It's something we talk about a lot. So you've got an incredible message from a personal story, a lot of experience, and you're going to bring it to the world. And instead of doing the normal personal development type book that, that I would do, you chose a story format. Now we've seen some people who have done that. We're soon going to have Ken Blanchard on the show here. And of course he's famous for having done that with the one minute manager and some of the other, other books, but yours was really significant. You went even further into true storytelling and the way you crafted it. As I got into some of it, I thought this is, this is significant. When did it hit you just as a, as a guy who wants to get a message out there to say, I'm going to do it in this format, not the normal scenario. Yeah, I've been a publishing executive for many, many years. So Mm -hmm. I'm an unusual first-time author, I think, having run uh, many companies and then having a a blog and knowing the publishing industry and being a a keynote speaker to many publishers. And then you want to write your book. And everybody always said, oh, Skip, you got to write the leadership book, right? So I know all the publishing rules, Mm -hmm. right, if if you want to talk about them. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, well, you know, here's rule number one. Rule two. I, I know what those are, and I broke all of them in in doing this. And one of one of the reasons is, you know, you can look at the research around stories. Jennifer Aker from Stanford says that you remember a story twenty two times more than a fact. Wow. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons why Zig Ziglar's message still re- resonates today. He was the best storyteller that we know. I mean, still, he is the best. And um, hmm. Paul. Uh, Zach, who I interviewed, he's runs the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies, which that means I'm really smart to me because yeah. I don't know what that exactly entails. But he studied the fact that your brain manufactures more oxytocin and that makes you more empathetic. So you become more receptive to the message. So the reasoning behind it in terms of the brain. Uh, Richard Branson says the art of storytelling can be used to drive change. Even Nelson Mandela, don't address their brains, address their hearts. And so storytelling addresses the hearts and then your brain comes along. If It impacts your emotion, not just your intellect and makes it more memorable, makes you apply it a little bit more. And I think about the next generation. I think about my daughter who is 20 in school and you know, a lot of that generation, at least right now, they don't want to read these long, but I, I read these very long success and leadership books. They, they, they don't want that. They want a story. They want something I can read on a plane. I can think about, I can apply very differently. And I can talk about the characters where I walk away with uh, thought provoking wisdom. And, and really we all want that. We, we want, we want to be entertained when we're taught. 
again, one of the reasons we love Zick, right? Yeah. He's so entertaining. You yeah. just can't tune in without just being pulled into wherever he's taking you versus a true lecture, you know, 17, this, that, et cetera, you know, robotic kind of uh, research mentality. Yeah. That has its place. But wow, do we love a good story. We do. Well, hey, okay. So I got to call out show 498. Not that long ago, we had Donald Miller on here, talked about his new book uh, on story. So folks, you can go listen to that. Incredible. I keep referencing it over and over because yeah, it's not my nature to tell a story. I'm kind of, I love bullet points. If those don't sell so well. Well, I want to get into some of the mistakes here and I really appreciate uh, right off the bat, you had a character, you had a different character come into the story, an older woman. And in the segment, she says, I was 30 when I realized what had happened. My roles were written by someone else and I was playing a part. And then you name the first mistake, which is working on someone else's dream. Now you, you actually call out to this because right away we can go, oh, okay, yeah, that's self-employment. You got to be self-employed, work on your own thing. Don't, don't work for somebody else because it's your, it's their dream. But you do caveat that and say, no, that's not, that's not the point. You can do it. You can do it even in in employment. Again, your statement was my, the roles were written by someone else and I was playing a part. So, well, let's just start there. Generally, do you find that people that's it comes from, I think we generally think of, you know, our upbringing, our parents or our family or our culture, but just to get the issue on the table for us to understand, gosh, who did write my role? Is that generally where you're going to cite it from is from parenting upbringing? It can happen in so many places. Certainly parenting, you can say, hey, why did you major in business? Well, dad said to, or why are you uh, a, a teacher, et cetera? Your first boss might put you into you know, something. You might end up in finance and because you have a proclivity for numbers, but your, your passion isn't there. And so it, it could be self-employment, but it could also be that you find yourself later in life saying, why am I over here in marketing when I really wanted to be in sales. And you can work on someone else's dream. You can be caught into part of someone else's dream. And I think it's so important to think about your own purpose. What is my own purpose? Uh, uh, Dan Bittner, he wrote uh, Blue Zones. He, he says, he, he cited a study in there that seven years of extra life can be tied to finding your purpose because it's that important. Uh, Zig Ziglar talks so much about sales, right? Sales was so important. And I think about sales and I do talks on, on sales and, and mistake number one. And, you know, your average salesperson thinks I want to make quota, but your extraordinary sales leader wants to change the world. Your average person, salesperson, as Zig would say, wants to be a wondering generality, whereas your extraordinary salesperson is a meaningful specific. Your average wants to hit the numbers. The extraordinary says, I want to serve you to hit your goals. Why? All of that's around purpose, around what is my purpose, not working on someone else's dream, but my dream. What do I want? What am I trying to achieve? Back to desire. What is in my desire? Not just someone else put this on me and I have no choice but to follow and do yeah. it. Uh, that will inevitably lead to a place of questioning, a desert time, a time when you're saying, hmm, I have to reevaluate. May end up in a midlife crisis. Wh wherever it ends up is because you've often found I've gone too far. Here, here's something that's that really influenced this. There's numerous studies that I've read and books 
on end of end of life mm. regrets, right? Have you seen these where, yeah. where they ask people? They're they're incredibly impacting. Yeah, to read those. In, incredible. And what's always one of the number one things they say? They say, I wish I, I would have been true to myself. I wish I would have been true to myself. That's mistake number one, right? Becoming part of someone else's dream. You don't want to end up on your deathbed getting interviewed by some researcher mm -hmm. saying, what do you regret? And they say, I wish I would have been true to myself. Work on your own dream. Don't work on someone else's. So I want to I want to follow up on that. We we do a program. Uh, it's called our Ziegler Legacy. And what we do is we help people transform. We, we it's a five day. We we equip them with our material. They go out and teach it. Um, and they don't a lot of times it's just internal. They just become the kind of person they've always wanted to become. And here's one of the most common questions that I get. They'll say, I'm not sure if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And then I respond back with, well, the what you do is important, but the why you do it changes everything. And then they flip and they go, well, what do I, why am I, I, I want to mentor people. Okay. And so then I say, okay, who do you have to become in order to be the type of mentor that will change somebody's life. And then it clicks over in their head. Wait a second. I don't have to leave the leadership position I have where I am. If my why changes and my, my desire to become that kind of person kicks in. So just that whole idea of determine who you want to be, not what you want to do. I'd love for you to just take that a little bit deeper because that to me, people think the answer is in what they do and it's not. And so I just want to get your, your take in it. So well said. And when you say things like that, I just want to take notes and, and, and ponder uh, the ideas that it, it brings. I, I think for me, it is really thinking about your impact and serving others and who do you want to be? How do you want to be known? Uh, what do you want people to say about you um, internally? What am I trying to, who am I trying to become? Not so much the, the what, you know, it's interesting. I have two kind of very different worlds. People think, right. One is I'm a corporate CEO of a global software business and that keeps me busy 100% of the workday uh, running a large software organization. And then I have this speaking, blogging, writing world over here. Now, the two intermix all the time because ideas from one come to the other. It impacts uh, the cup size and, and capacity. But it stemmed from this very thought that, that you're bringing up in the question, which is, Hey, I, I, I have this desire to want to influence, to give back, to, to inspire, to, to do these things. I could quit my job and just go do that. That's certainly always possible, but I don't need to do that. I can do both of those things. I can do them easily. They can interrelate because I'm thinking about who do I want to be, not what do I want to do. It's not just the job that I have every day or the business or the the, the website or whatever you do, it's what do I want to do to impact people? And instead, then I take those goals and they become part of everything that I do, regardless of 
where or what it is. So um, if I'm speaking on something, it all of those things interrelate because it changes who I am. Right. So I just, I sum it up with people and I leave them this one thought. When you clearly know the why, it supercharges the how and the what unfolds before your eyes. Because and the what unfolds before your eyes. I like that because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's the truth. That is it. I, I didn't have this plan. People are like, oh, you had this plan to do this, 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 and this checklist. I'm like, I, I wish that I could say that was the case. But no, that was not the case. So the what does uh, go before your eyes. In the book, I say that a clear purpose attracts ideas, uh, attracts people, ideas, and resources to its cause. Yeah. A clear purpose attracts people, ideas, and resources to its cause. And and I think that's true, right? The why, and then all of a sudden, you, you find that people just, boom, they're with you. And the what, as you say, just unfolds. Well, this, uh, at, at the end of the, I think it was the first, second chapter, you said something that's just so relevant to, well, to the Ziegler show, but really to any self-development, personal development aspect. You said knowledge comes in bursts, but wisdom speaks in silence. And I really took that one captive because we, well, I'll say I, sometimes I grapple with it. I mean, I'm a podcast host. I'm putting out content. We in this world, I mean, we put out content and it's great. You talked about, you read a book a day and I know the more I read, I get inspired. I get, uh, I get motivated. I get equipped, but then it also comes down to the end of the day. What do you actually do with it? And so here we are, we're in this world. I know that we spend billions of dollars on getting more knowledge. That's great. But what do we do? And I was intrigued by you saying, okay, knowledge comes in bursts. So here we are, folks. We're bursting on the Ziegler show right now, giving you some knowledge. But wisdom speaks in silence. Will you speak to to that? So as people hear that, they go, okay, tell me how to do that. Did you feel that wisdom in that silent moment? <laughs> I got real uncomfortable as the podcast. <laughs> okay. Right. No, I so got we it. Do get, we do get very uncomfortable. And a period of silence, yeah. even for just a few seconds. And we're itching to fill that voice. We're itching, itching to fill that space. Um, I just got back from an extraordinary business trip to Tokyo, Japan. And we had an Asia Pacific conference, uh, attendees from every country in Asia. But I spent some time with, uh, with, a number of people, Japanese business leaders, government leaders, and what an interesting experience. I, I mean, I, I studied protocols. I've been there many times. I, I studied protocols of, you know, Japanese practices, et cetera. And there's rules that are are unique from, from a Western perspective of when you get on the elevator, where do you sit? How do you present your business card? All those things. But one of them is silence. When when there's a very uncomfortable, contentious negotiation or point where people are disagreeable in the U.S., right? We will we, we will get louder, we will get bombastic, we will get more emphatic, we will bring in facts, we will argue, we will explain with uh, excitement, or we will use one of Zig Ziglar's fabulous techniques and change our intonation or whatever it is to close the the sale in. Japan, they go completely silent. And that silence, they're very comfortable. Their idea is in that silence, you're allowing the um, tension to drain, the, the, uh, the kind of angst to just leave. And then we're going to come back 
to to where we are. And we have a tendency, even even at dinner, they will they will be quiet sometimes. And and my tendency is always, well, it, it it's clearly my job to to jump in and tell a story, keep the conversation going, whatever. And and so I had to practice and learn. So your question just is really resonating with me today uh, because knowledge does come in bursts. Wisdom does come in silence. Some cultures practice silence as part of their kind of everyday life. And, and we just don't tend to do that. But it is extraordinarily important. And this is not new, right? This goes back to ancient days, right? Jesus would get away in the desert. He would go to times of silence. And in those desert times of silence, he could have extraordinary growth. He could have wisdom in a, in a different way. And so I think uh, silence is, is certainly underplayed and wisdom often comes in silence, stilling our mind, stilling our body. Uh, and especially at the end of the year, to, before you go into a new one, you just want to think about Hey, am I am I silent? Right, beginning of the year as I as I embark, I'm, I'm running to all of these different things. Can I allow myself some silence, some room, some space? It, it allows extraordinary uh, capacity in Western societies. Type A driven, goal leading people, we tend not to be comfortable with silence. Wow, I just I just love this. Um, one of my best friends, Bob Bodine, wrote the book two chairs and two chairs is a practice that I do every day and it's five minutes and I ask God three questions. Do you know what's going on? Yes. Are you big enough to handle it? Yes. What's the plan? And then I quiet my mind for four minutes and and just listen. And I have to tell you, that's one of the most difficult things I've ever had to learn to do is how to get the stuff out of your mind and let wisdom speak. I love that. So true. It's in that silence. It's just hard for us, I I think, in our culture. And we're racing and our devices are attached to us. And we're, you know, getting notifications and social media is coming at us and text message and email and people are calling and music. There are very few times, there are very few places where you can actually be silent. Well, taking the exercise too. So, okay. It's one, I I went and looked it up real quick because I couldn't remember who said it. it was Pascal. So this was said however long ago he was around. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And my mental image, interestingly enough, is Bill Gates. The story about him was his mom, who thought he was kind of cracked, I think, at some point, came into the garage. And he's just sitting there on a crate or something like that. The garage, the old story that it was, you know, born in a garage. And she said, what are you doing? And he, he was irritated. He says, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. And I've experienced that. I'm on so much knowledge, but it is one of my classic times is coming out of sleep. And I will just, if I let myself, don't get up. And just start thinking about something, you know, something that I'm trying, usually something I'm trying to build, create, and it wows me how the pieces will come together. That's why I was, I was so, uh, again, I wanted us to focus just like we have on that. Thank you for, for bringing that. Well, I want to, again, folks, there are nine mistakes. We've talked specifically about one, uh, really. So go get the book. You know, that's, that's, that's the point of this too. Go get the book. But mistake number two is where I want us to land. And uh, you said mistake number two is allowing someone else 
to define your value. And then you write that it gets much worse than that. We accept our own labels and you get into what, what I thought of as limiting beliefs. And, you know, it's not hard to hear that message of, uh, you know, we talk about that. We, we do limit ourselves by the values and perspectives that we were uh, often given, but the power is in how do we actually change our perspective and belief and take different actions? Or do we just take different actions as a catalyst for changing our beliefs? Again, it's the chicken or the egg there where, it kind of goes back to where we're talking about desire or, or dealing with distractions. If desire is big enough on this one. Again, do you work on, okay, I'm going to change my beliefs, change my image, my, the value I have of myself, or do I just take some actions that somewhat force that to come to pass? I don't know. I don't know that one. I'll give it to you. Great, great question. A lot of thoughts in there. Uh, the second mistake is allowing someone else to define your value. It, it, it stems from this uh, interesting, or I, or I write a book about how we label people and we allow our value to be determined by, by someone else. And I use the example in the book of a nickel, right? How much is a nickel worth? Of course, five cents. How much does it cost to manufacture a nickel in the United States today? Over 10 cents. I mean, crazy, right? So why do we value something that costs 10 cents? Why are we valuing it at five cents? Because of the label that we stamp on it. And I thought, how often do we stop ourselves from succeeding at the 10 cent level because we've labeled ourselves at the five cent level? How often do we label ourselves incorrectly? And what we often do is we allow other people to stamp labels on us and they stick. And this happened so much with these people who would come into our home. When you would see the person cycle back and fail, it's because they couldn't get rid of that label that was limiting them. And the people that would succeed would put a label that was bigger than what they are. Zig Ziglar would inspire us to put on the nickel, the 25 cent, the silver dollar label, so that we would say, I'm going for this goal. I'm going to expand myself so that I can have this amazing capacity and label myself differently. But so often, right, we're in third grade and someone says, well, you're not very good at sports and it sticks. Or we get up and we try to speak in the 10th grade and somebody, you know, they laugh at us or whatever. And we think, oh, we developed this fear of public speaking because, oh my gosh, I was labeled as a horrible speaker or actor or what have you. We allow these labels to, to stick and it's so important to let go of those labels and to relabel. Like what label? I, I go through an exercise. I have a, a free book that uh, a companion guide to the book where these exercises are written in there for teams. And one of them is this labeling exercise of the team and the person, right? Let go. What, what labels do I want to be on me? I'm going to write those down. What labels are on me? And I want to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And that exercise is extraordinarily important. Well, I, I love this. I want to speak to the headlines right now. Um, the, he- the headlines that we're seeing every day now are people who are coming out ashamed of what they did in the past mm-hmm. and saying that they were abused by someone else in power. And I'm talking about, you know, the daily headline of who else has sexually harassed somebody. And I was talking about it with my wife and we were like, how can somebody 
let that happen or agree to do something like that. And I think you just hit the nail on the head. For some reason, we think our value is what we do or our value is how somebody else can use us instead of our value is we're priceless because we're God's creation. That's right. 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 What label do we want to accept? And if you're, you know, if you're whatever your beliefs are, but if you if you believe that you're you're made in God's image, you're going to have a certain kind of label that's going to be different than if you believe uh, other things. And 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 what is that identity? And you're you're only going to rise. You can't rise higher than your identity and and the label that you have for yourself. If you do, you're going to sabotage yourself to come back to a to a lower level, which I think some of this right. is, is due to that. Uh, so I, I think that's that's right. How do you aspire and and continue to label yourself in in the right way, and then put the labels on and the thoughts on that are good, pure, lovely, good report things that are going to draw you to the positive and not to the negative. I love that. It's like the label is it's like it's like lead weight. Whichever whichever label you put on yourself is going to have different degrees of lead weight that's going to keep that balloon on the ground or allow it to go wherever God wants it to go. Uh, right. You can, you can label yourself with uh, this incredible inspirational opportunity, right? You can label yourself as, uh, as an inspirer, as an encourager, as um, someone who speaks influence, or you can label yourself as, negative, critical, et cetera. And, and you don't have to accept the labels that people put on you. And you don't have to accept your own labels that you put on yourself. You can rethink this in a very clear exercise, but it does go back to what you were saying earlier on your who and, and really thinking about your why, because those labels are key to that exercise. I love this. This is, this is the core of what we do. And I, the book is just amazing. So uh, I always, I always smile when I when I see information like this. You know, Dad was ahead of his time, and he you was. Know, you know, I, it's amazing to see. You know, I, I I'll take because your dad was so influential to me, and um, not only changed who I am, but in sales, he made me a lot of money because I always exceeded and was the top sales producer because of it. I guarantee you, it was because of his teaching, and. One of the things about these labels, and I, I wrote this leadership guide to the Book of Mistakes that's available uh, at thebookofmistakes.com. And it's available because um, all of these things that are, are applied personally can also be applied to your company. Take sales as an example. Do you know the, the best salespeople are the ones that not only don't allow the competition to define them, but they define the competition first? right? So they're labeling the competition first. You know, if you get into an RFP or to a competitive situation and you're, you know, the, the, you know that your client's trying to decide between product A or product B, service A, service B, the one that wins is usually the, the person who labeled the competition one way and did it early often. And then if they've limited them or uh, put them in a box. It's very hard for them to come in and get that label off and get the client to think of them in a different way. So all of these mistakes are interesting personally, but they also are relevant to you in a company because what is your company? What is your team? What is your label? Right? Do you want to be known personally? What does your team want to be? What does your company want to be known as? And that's why if I call 
uh, a certain company and they have the wrong label. I know that label immediately when I talk to the first person, see the first person in there, that label comes through loud and clear. And you can change and make it deliberate, or you can just uh, allow the competition and others to slap labels on you. You know, I just, Kevin, I'll turn it back over to you, but you just left something hanging that's that's pretty exciting for us. And that is, you said that the the things you learned from, from Zig Ziglar on sales made you a lot of money. And we are excited because... Coming up uh, February first, we are re- we are launching relaunching Secrets of Closing the Sale, and uh, that was Dad's ultimate program. So our podcast members they get that first they get the first notice it's coming. So thanks for jogging my mind on that incredible material, and I, it, it it of course made me a lot of money in sales, but. It is applicable to your marriage, to your friendship. I mean, th- those those techniques in there are invaluable. And I, I can't tell you what a difference they made to me personally. Uh, well, thank you. Well, you said Zig made you lots of money. Well, thanks for paying royalties by uh, paying it forward with this book, your message, and your heart. This has been an absolute gift. Thank you so much. Thank you. Friends, I hope you are inspired about being or becoming the person who succeeds regardless of your circumstances, someone who is growth-minded, not fixed-minded. Well, coming up next in show 541, we go behind the scenes with Skip, following the spokes and the Ziggler wheel of life, looking at the highlights of his habits of success. Some of those are lifting weights, makes him happy, says he could do it all day long, but he also loves to eat and counts that as a weakness, but he is a passionate believer in dark chocolate. God love him for that. He and his family all sing together and they feel it's a great stress relief. He reads a book a day, but struggles to get adequate sleep. He likes Jim Rohr's statement of working harder on yourself than on your job and admits that he has a hard time taking time for just himself. That's difficult. You're going to get a lot from this talk, folks. Well, till then, thank you for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. 